Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. Um, this is my third time that I've had this gentleman on. And one of the reasons I had him on a second time was because he was telling me about this book that he was in the process of producing uh, called Infinite Goodness, Joseph Smith, Jonathan Edwards, and the Book of Mormon, uh, written by Jonathan Edward Neville. That was smart of you to put that in there. <laughs> and uh, I was so fascinated because this is uh, where I like to find the convergence of my evangelical world with the restoration is where a lot of interesting things happen. And mm -hmm. speaking of interesting things, I have a very interesting man on my program, uh, Jonathan Neville. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. I always enjoy speaking with you too. Yes, it's always a pleasure us just having great conversations with each other. And you know, this is the thing, folks. I um, I just want to tell you, you know, I got a lot of flack when I had Jonathan on as a guest. I had somebody commenting, how dare you give him a platform? And I had this tiny little channel and that was too big of a platform for Jonathan Neville. And my channel is five times bigger now um, since that initial interview that I did with Jonathan. And uh, so I give him, I'm going to give him a bigger platform now because I think that Jonathan is an audacious, radical thinker. And there are people that I have talked to in, in background, just so you know, very highly regarded people that love Jonathan and the work that he does. So I knew something about my gut when I first saw you on Rod Meldrum's Come Follow Me. Now I was aware of your books, but it wasn't until I saw you on camera. This guy, this guy's different. This guy thinks differently. And he's a very, very intellectually uh, interesting person. He's, he's got a curiosity about him that I just find remarkable. You're an original thinker, Jonathan. And uh, I just want you to say, why, why is it, Jonathan, that a lot of people just don't seem to like what you're doing? You know, that's, it depends on who you're talking to, of course, and what the topic is. But I think a lot of it is because of how I got into this. I, you know, I originally got into this discussion of, of church history because I was curious about how we got where we are. And the first thing, as you know, was the Benjamin Winchester thing, because there were these anonymous articles in the Times and Seasons that everybody attributed to Joseph Smith. And I, I challenged that assumption. And as I did more and more research, it turned out there are a lot of things no one had ever looked at before. And I ended up concluding that it was Benjamin Winchester and William Smith who were the kind of the people behind the scenes at the Times and Seasons, even though it was attributed to Joseph Smith. That stepped on a lot of toes because people had had their careers built around basically the whole Mesoamerican setting of the Book of Mormon based on these articles in the Times and Seasons. And still to this day, there's people who are really upset that I propose there's someone else other than Joseph Smith who was responsible for that. And so that led me to realize, it kind of opened the door for me to realize that the academics, the apologists, and the LDS apologists, are really more in a groupthink mentality than individual thought and research. And as I left from there to pursue another uh, avenue, which was the letter seven, the Hilkamora stuff, I, I pursued the um, two sets of plates scenario, the translation of the Book of Mormon itself. And, and now as we're gonna talk about the influence of Jonathan Edwards, each of these areas were things that made the whole narrative of the restoration make more sense to me than what I had learned from the apologists. And then the same, at the same time, I would go through things like the CES letter or Mormon stories and their 
arguments with uh, Fair Mormon or Fair Latter-day Saints, Book of Mormon Central, and I, I saw that the two groups were basically agreeing on the underlying assumptions that I thought were wrong. And so I think the apologists get offended by me linking them with the critics, even though they agree on, on basic things like the Mesoamerican setting and, and uh, the translation with the stone and the hat and those kind of things that to me, I find uh, not supportable by the historical evidence. So I guess it's just the, the typical academic arrogance where they, they think the credentialed class should be the ones telling everybody else what to think. And I just don't agree with that. I mean, basically I'm, I'm this artist out in Oregon that I do my independent research and come up with conclusions that seem really obvious that never occurred to these uh, academics before. So I, I guess they get offended by that. But really I'm a nice guy, I'm harmless. I love everybody. I'm not trying to cause any trouble. I'm just telling people what I think and what I've come across as I've done my research. You know, and one of the things actually we've talked about this is that you um, advocate a position of multiple working hypotheses. Right. In other words, why should there only be one hypothesis that's the acceptable one? Why can't yeah. we? Tell us a little bit about the, the framework of that. Yeah, well, a lot of that came from when I practiced law. One of the things you do in, in any kind of a trial situation or litigation situation is the first thing everybody has to do is agree to the facts. And that's when you go through the pleadings in, in a legal scenario. The idea of the pleadings is to narrow the, the, the contested facts by separating them from the uncontested facts. And once you can all agree on the uncontested facts, you can see that there's different ways of interpreting it. Everybody can agree to the exact same facts, but they have different interpretations. And that's what leads to a trial. And I see the same thing happening in history. You have a, a particular set of facts, and then historians look at it and draw different inferences and interpretations in different contexts to come up with different hypotheses about what happened. And that's what is, has been lacking in LDS apologetics. Everybody had a set of facts, and they assumed there was only one possible interpretation of it. And if you varied from that interpretation, they would consider you unorthodox. When I first got into this, I, I had a meeting with one of the principal apologists, he told me that their group, because they think of themselves as a group, thought that I was this far from being an apostate because I disagreed with them. And you, you, the, the young scholars at BYU, the, 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 what I call the kids now because I'm so old, <laughs> but the, the younger scholars, the students at BYU, grow up admiring their, the professors that they have and they adopt their same mindset and they just perpetuate it. It's what I call the academic cycle. And so these things just get, and when you go in and, and put a cog in their wheel and say, wait a minute, you guys made an assumption here that doesn't really uh, fly or there's another way to look at it. There's an alternative interpretation. They get upset. And so what I try to advocate is let's all agree on the basic facts. There may be a few contested facts that we can discuss, but once we all agree on the facts, let's look at different possible interpretations this idea of multiple working hypotheses. And let's see which of the different alternative interpretations best explains the facts. It's, it's real straightforward. That's why, you know, I have no problem with people believing the Mesoamerican theory of Book of Mormon geography, for example, or the Baja theory, the Peru theory, the Malaysian theory. People can think whatever they want, that's fine with me. 
what I resist is the idea that there's only one possible interpretation. And that's why, you know, there's a lot of opposition to the heartland movement, so to speak. That's because people don't even want, the people who advocate the Mesoamerican in particular, because they're the dominant ones, they don't want people to even know about the heartland theory because they see it as a threat. Whereas I see it as a way to expand our understanding of all the facts and let people make informed decisions on their own. That's what you know, I advocate. And, and, the, and I find so interesting is we, we discussed this briefly off camera and I've, and I've talked to other outsiders, other scholars who have engaged the restoration. And one of the things that we don't get is why there's so much controversy about the heartland model, because this is the thing. No. Um, when you do um, scholarship and you're doing biblical scholarship, uh, you're looking at the reception history um, right. of, of these scriptures. And what does that mean? Well, the reception history is one, how it has been received throughout history, but more importantly, what was the reception? How did the first audience receive it? I don't care right. what a Christian thought of Paul's letters in 300 AD. I'm more, mm -hmm. I wanna know what the Corinthians thought about the letter, who the letter yeah. was written to. And the Book yeah. of Mormon makes it very clear that, that the book was to come out at a particular time to a particular people. So we know who the initial audience is. We even have the publishing date. So we, we have that. We know exactly when it came out. And so that's the most important audience in one sense is the first audience. Mm -hmm. Now, when old Brigham and Sidney Rigdon get a copy of the Book of Mormon and they read it and they're convinced by the contents, part of the reason why they're convinced of it is they look out and they see those Indian mounds and they say, that's the history of those people. And that was foundational. That starts the whole church. So yeah. to be critical of the Heartland model, you, this is something, this is generally speaking what they believed at the time. Joseph walked the plains of the Nephites. Yeah. It was science camp. He found Zelf's mound. So Joseph believed in the Heartland model. Um, and then the other thing I people will say, well, Joseph didn't, you know, Joseph was just interpreting. He didn't know, you know, he could, he could have, he didn't know yeah. where this stuff was happening. And then I say, well, yeah, but he met with Moroni. And some people think also <laughs> Nephi, right? Right. Yeah, that's right. Well, so, and, and along those lines, Heber C. Kimball, who lived in Western New York near Palmyra and who Brigham Young stayed with after his wife died, Heber C. Kimball said when he joined the church, he went to go to the Hill Cumorah and he saw the embankment still there around the hill. And the thing that's happened, as near as I can figure out, is that a lot of the LDS scholars started interpreting the Book of Mormon a certain way. And then they said, well, Cumorah doesn't match our interpretation, which is exactly backwards because they should have started with Cumorah and used the New York Cumorah to interpret the Book of Mormon. And th the best example I can give succinctly is at the end when it talks about the, the final battles and there was Mormon and Moroni said my 10,000 and Moroni said his 10,000 were there. And those are the only two 10,000s they could see. Well, does that mean literally 10,000 people and not 9,999 or 10,001? Or was it a military unit? And I've given lots of examples from history where military units were called the 10,000, even if there were fewer than seven or 8,000 in there, it could even be smaller. And so if, if we interpret that the way that term is normally used in history as a military unit, it doesn't refer to the number of people at all. And that allows for a much smaller battle at Camorra, which is how Oliver Cowdery described it in the first place. So I think that looking at what the early church members experienced, what Joseph and Oliver 
taught and using that to interpret the Book of Mormon is better than just interpreting the Book of Mormon and then saying Kimura doesn't fit. And this is the thing too, is, you know, a lot of people are, well, Joseph Smith was the editor of the Times and Seasons, blah, blah, blah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I have w. w. Phelps's book. I'm going to be reading it and having Bruce Van Orman on again to talk about the book. And Bruce will tell you, W. w. Phelps was the editor. This is in the authoritative biography of W. w. Phelps. Yeah. Yeah, Bruce and I have talked about that. We we agree that Phelps was involved and we have a little shading of whether William Smith was more involved or Phelps was more involved. But the bottom line was Joseph had nothing to do with it. And he didn't have time. In fact, during that period when he was supposedly the editor of the Times and Seasons, Woodward Woodruff noted in his journal that Joseph hardly has time to sign the papers that we prepare for him. So he had no time to sit around and, and leisurely read these long books and write summaries of them and excerpts and stuff. It's just a ridiculous idea. And yet that's the whole Mesoamerican thing is based on those anonymous articles. But we're not really here to talk about no, geography. No, we're not. <laughs> and we're not. But I, I wanted to, right. I wanted to, I just felt like, man, we got to get this out there because it yeah, is important yeah. that as an outsider, how I'm seeing it and also talking to other outsiders, how we see it, yeah, that we don't quite get it. We don't quite get it. And that well, you can't get it because it doesn't make sense. <laughs> the, the mound builder thing is, is let, me, let me just mention one last thing on that because the mound builders are still a mystery, right? They didn't leave any written records, which is what the Book of Mormon says. The only written records were the ones in the New York depository because from Enos through, um, I guess in, the, in, in Moroni's book, the Lamanites are always trying to destroy the records through the, the whole history was destroying records. And so we would expect to find a society that didn't have any records left. And that's what we have with the, the mound builders. The other thing, of course, is that um, one of the reasons that the L.E. Hills, the RLDS scholar who kind of developed the two Camorras thing, the reason he did that was because of a book called The Camorra Revisited that was published in the early 1900s by Charles Shook. And his, his thesis was the Book of Mormon can't be an accurate history because it describes two different civilizations in, in the Americas, but we know there was only one, according to Charles Shook. But he lived before the Adena and the Hopewell had been distinguished as two different civilizations that roughly match what the Book of Mormon says. So the whole uh, genesis of the Mesoamerican theory was based on outdated archaeology from the early 1900s. So if we go back and revisit all that, we can see that the Hopewell and Adina align really well with the Jaredites and the, the Nephites. And so it's, it's, it's just fascinating history. It is. And then look, Hugh Nibley said the Book of Mormon makes most the most sense in a, yeah. in a mound builder uh, context. So yeah, I, like I said, sure. I'm, but I, no, I do want to tell my audience, I am, this is a safe space. All views all right. are welcome. Um, I have talked to people our advocates of the Mesoamerican model, mm -hmm. and I hope to have them come on uh, as well and give their presentation. I'm an open-minded guy, you know, so yeah. there are interesting things and parallels that people do bring up about Guatemala mm -hmm. and North uh, Southern Mexico. And, you know, hey, let's let's hash it out yeah. and have conversations, you know, let's have and multiple working hypotheses. There you go. That's that's the theme, because I, I link to their stuff all the time. I want people to know what they're saying as well. I'm not trying to I'm not trying to censor anybody at all. Just the opposite. So yep. anyway. Oh, that like informed decisions. That's right. And, and so, and this is what I find so interesting because I was actually talking to a, a pretty well-renowned scholar about your book and they mm -hmm. said, well, this, that, oh, the influences of, you know, uh, other people like 
influencing the Book of Mormon. That's that's been uh, talked about before. Papers have been written about that. So, but you don't understand. See this book, Infinite Goodness, talking about the influence that Jonathan Edwards had on the translation process of the Book of Mormon was mm -hmm. put out is being advocated by an Orthodox believing um, member of the Church of Jesus Christ of right. Latter-day Saints. He's accepting all the modern scholarship, but is giving us a faithful understanding of what the scholarship is actually telling us. And I think that's what makes you so unique and brilliant. And tell us just a little bit, what, how did you come across Jonathan Edwards? Well, that's a, a really good question. It isn't because my middle name is Edward, <laughs> Jonathan Edwards. It isn't because my mom grew up in Connecticut where Jonathan Edwards was and so on. What happened was I was interested in this idea of the translation of the Book of Mormon. I, you know, I wrote the book, A Man That Can Translate, about that. That's my phone ringing. I forgot to mute it. It's not a problem. So, I'll just mute away and uh, there it is. fine. Okay. So I, I was interested in the translation. And, you know, there's there's a scholar named Royal Skousen who wrote a big, thick book. In fact, I have it, happen to have it right here. This is it. And it says, the King James quotations in the Book of Mormon. And his thesis was, that the King James version of the Bible is what Joseph Smith kind of, or the stone in the hat, relied on to create much of the Book of Mormon. And I thought, well, there's undoubtedly direct quotations from the Bible in the Book of Mormon, Isaiah particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, but there's a lot of uh, biblical language that's kind of interwoven or, or blended. And he assumes it all came from the Bible. And I started thinking, well, wait a minute, the Bible is only one source. There are also all these Christian writers and theologians who quoted the Bible and interweaved it and uh, blended it themselves in their sermons. And so I, I made a list of all the non-biblical language in the Book of Mormon, all the non-biblical words to begin with. And then I expanded that into phrases and, and longer passages. And I started searching for it because I figured, all right, I, I still, I'm just so you know, for, for you and, and the listeners, I'm one of the few who still believes Joseph Smith actually translated the plates. Most people think now, according to the scholars, that he just read the words off the stone, which I don't buy. And so if he translated it, he would have had to have the words and concepts in his mind in order to articulate them in English, right? So I figured, okay, the King James uh, is an obvious source. But what about all the non-biblical words? And as I started doing research into those, I kept coming up with Jonathan Edwards. And I said, well, how would Joseph Smith have been exposed to Jonathan Edwards? Jonathan Edwards died in the 1750s. And so he, you know, he was dead 60 or 70 years before Joseph Smith ever got into this. How would he have made a connection? And I went through the um, Palmyra newspapers and there was a Palmyra newspaper in it was published in seven or 1818, 18, 1921, roughly. And they published the books that they had on sale at the print shop. And so I went through that list of books and I started doing research on all these books as potential sources. And one of them just said Edwards eight volumes. And I didn't even know what that was. But after I kept coming up with Jonathan Edwards over and over and over, I re-looked at that and I realized that in 1808, an eight volume series or set but Jonathan Edwards' books was published. And that's when I, I, I kind of put two and two together and realized that Edwards' volumes were on sale in that Palmyra uh, bookshop. The reason that's so important is John, uh, the, the people working in that print shop made an observation that Joseph Smith would come in and lounge around. He was a, 
I, I don't remember the exact phrase they used for him. You might remember, but it was, uh, he, he was hanging out at the print shop a lot. And to the point where he was so annoying that they would take the, the ink dauber that they used on the press and hit him in the face with it to blacken his face to get him away from them. But he, he was that much of a pest at this bookstore. And I thought, well, okay, that means that he was interested in the books enough to hang around in the bookstore. He would have access to reading Jonathan Edwards. So the initial feedback that I got when, when I passed these ideas around a few historians that I know is, well, Joseph Smith was ignorant. He was virtually illiterate. The only book he ever read was the Bible. And I, I, I asked them, I said, well, how do you know that? And they said, well, because well, we really don't know how we know that. <laughs> they didn't have a good explanation other than this narrative that developed over time that Joseph Smith was too ignorant to have produced the Book of Mormon. But that was kind of an apologist narrative that came later. So I started, I noticed there was a, tell me if I'm digressing too much, but I'm trying to answer your question. There was a really fascinating account that Joseph Smith gave to a visitor he had, I believe it was in 1835. And the guy came to him and said, tell me about the origin of your church. And Joseph said, starting at the young age of around six, I told him about my experiences. And then I, that's when the light really dawned on me because I thought, okay, at the age of six, what happened? He had his leg surgery. When he had his leg surgery, he was laid up for three years, basically. Even by the time they went to Palmyra, three years later, he was still on crutches. And his mother said she had to carry him around and so on. And so the, um, the uh, uncle, his uncle, Jesse, when he was recuperating, took him down to Salem's to be by the seashore. They figured the sea air was more healthy, which living here on the coast in Oregon, I agree with. But <laughs> So they took him to Salem and he was laid up. He could do nothing other than sit in bed and read. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have television. It's hard for kids today to relate to that, but all he could do was read. And I found these uh, four lectures to young men that were had been a sermon, series of sermons by Samuel Dean that were widely available and specifically for young men. By the way, Uncle Jesse was a very devout Christian. So I thought, well, what would Uncle Jesse give Joseph Smith to read while he's laid up recuperating by the seashore? And these four essays came up. I looked at those and you read through them. It's like reading the Book of Mormon. The non-biblical language in there is um, the same kind of terminology and language in these essays is in the Book of Mormon. So that told me that that was a possible source of Joseph's language. I guess I should back up and explain that my idea of, of the translation is that a translator can only use the words that are in their mind, their lexicon, what I call the mental language bank. And so if I've translated things into different languages myself. And I know that my ability to translate from English into another language is contingent on me understanding the words in that language. And from translating another language into English, I have to draw my own lexicon as well, so both ways. So for Joseph Smith to translate whatever the engravings on the plates were into English, he had to have those words in his mind and know what they meant in context. And the only way he could have done that was by reading. And so when I started spotting these, this non-biblical language, first in, in Samuel Dean's uh, uh, pamphlets, but especially in Jonathan Edwards, 
it all made sense to me that, and especially when there's some very relatively long phrases in the Book of Mormon that are non-biblical that are right out of Jonathan Edwards. And I, I guess we'll get to some examples of that in a little while here. But this is all just to explain kind of how I got, I focused in on Jonathan Edwards as the principal source of the non-biblical language in the Book of Mormon. You know, one of the things I want us to talk a little bit about is the stereotype of Jonathan Edwards. Most mm -hmm. people think of him as the most famous sermon ever given, Sinners in the Hands of right. an Angry God. And kind of, and, and you even cite how uh, Stephen Harper and another gentleman uh, used- Terrell Givens. Terrell Givens, how could I forget yeah. that name? Yeah. Um, that they uh, contrast the Restoration and Mormonism with that sermon. Right. But as yeah. you dug past the superficial uh, mm -hmm. reading of Jonathan Edwards and actually got to engage the man in his writings, you found something very different. Yeah, and, and I, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the most appalling things that I've seen. Because Terrell Givens, and um, particularly Terrell Givens, because Stephen Harper just kind of borrowed uh, Terrell Givens' point, he, he tries to contrast Sarah Edwards, which is Jonathan's wife, with Jonathan Edwards, as if they were opposite ideas. And really, they were completely congruent. And it's, it's because, let me just give the background of it. Sarah Edwards had been, um, of course, she was Jonathan Edwards' wife, and he was out preaching in another town, and she had this, um, this very profound spiritual experience, where she, like it talks about in the Book of Mormon, where people are just overwhelmed by the spirit, and they collapse, and people think they're dead, or they might die, and so on. Sarah had that experience herself, and when Jonathan came back, and she related it to him, he was ecstatic because he had wanted her to feel that, to have that um, born again experience, that Christian experience, and she had never had it before then, but now she did. And so he made a big point about embracing it. He, and he, she had received a lot of criticism that she had been too, um, I guess, had gone too far into her religious experience by uh, collapsing and, and talking about it and having this euphoria about it. So some people felt like that had gone too far. And, and Jonathan said, if that's too far, I want to go that far too. And he, he not only embraced it, but he's, and, and the historians aren't sure. I've talked with the, the main um, Edwards biographers and the experts at Yale. And there's some disagreement whether Jonathan wrote her story as she dictated it or she wrote it as he encouraged her to do it. But either way, it was his prompting her to write her story that caused that to be written. And then he even adapted it. He wanted to keep her anonymous to some degree. And so he wrote a version of her account without using her name or her gender so people wouldn't identify that he was talking about her. So both his account, which was in one of his, uh, his books and her account, which was separate, were caused because Jonathan Edwards embraced it and loved it and wanted people to know about it. So for Terrell Givens to contrast it is really just, um, it, it serves his rhetorical purpose because he's trying to make this distinction that you're talking about between the sinners in the hands of an angry God versus his idea of woundedness that he talks about in his All Things New book and his other books. But really he's, he's misleading people about that because Jonathan Edwards was very much all about a personal God and about God being our heavenly father. And when he died, he even told his kids that he was 
they were going to lose their earthly father, but they still had a heavenly father who would never fail them. It was, you know, to that effect that he talked about. So this is very much part of his uh, theology and his preaching. This, and he, he pointed out, even in the sinners of the hands of an angry God, you, you can read the sermon and be alarmed that, oh, this is terrible, right? And it, it's such a vibrant language that it became a classic in American literature that people studied in high school and, and college. But when you read the accounts of what actually happened during the sermon, people were weeping and wailing and, and just distraught. He couldn't even finish the sermon actually at the time. But then they went among the people and ministered to him. And people were just overjoyed that they had found Christ. He, that sermon is really a way to dislodge people from their attachment to the world and bring them to Christ. That was why he did it. And it was very effective for that. It was not to tell people that um, that God is is going to throw you into hell and, and destroy you and all that. It was to provoke them to seek God themselves and to find Christ. And it, and it, it was so effective that other people mimicked it and copied it. You know, it's so interesting because, you know, I'm in the charismatic movement mm -hmm. and um, the Calvinists claim Jonathan Edwards as their own. But right. they really hate it when we like to point out moves of God with Jonathan Edwards and even like even like John Bunyan. Everybody loves Pilgrim's Progress, but they hate the fact that he had a dream vision. It was inspired to write the book. Yeah. Um, the gifts and all these things were manifesting in all these movements at the very beginning. And yeah. so people on our side even kind of are revisionist mm -hmm. historians where they want to basically right. whitewash the Holy Spirit out of the story and just try to keep it more of an intellectual endeavor and, and also an impersonal God. Let, let me read you, I, I pulled it up here because I love this quote that I, I put in the book. And this is something Edwards wrote that, that the Calvinists don't like to even acknowledge. <laughs> he said, I utterly disclaim a dependence on Calvin or believing the doctrines which I hold because he believed and taught them and cannot justly be charged with believing in everything just as he taught. That's Jonathan Edwards wrote that. And that's why, as, as you know, from reading the book, there's, I have several chapters that discuss what Edwards taught in connection with the restoration. Has nothing to do with Calvin at all. His idea of America being the promised land and the source of the evangel evangelism in the latter days and all that stuff, that is, Calvin had nothing to say about that. Yes, that's very true. You know, and, and actually you, you did a lot of research into like, like one place where you talk about the ter in, uh, biblical and non-biblical intertextuality. Uh, you mm -hmm. gave a couple examples of like uh, sins of the world, um, right. weeping, the, 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 the specific phraseology of weeping yeah. and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Yeah. Talk a little bit just about some of these phrases and words that were unique to if you will, the Book of Mormon and Jonathan Edwards and that okay. climate. That, that's really good. Well, you know, I mentioned this book earlier by, by Royal Skousen about the King James. And one of the things that he, he brings out in here, he has a, a long section about it, about how Joseph didn't exactly copy the King James in several instances. There's, there's this blending I talked about or paraphrasing or um, using a, a phrase that's similar to the Bible, but it has a few uh, different words or um, tenses and so on. And many of those that I've gone through, including his examples, are right out of Jonathan Edwards. 
Jonathan Edwards felt free to reinterpret the Bible. He, he, because he accepted the King James, but he, he very often would retranslate something from the Hebrew or the Greek. Because even when he was young, he was uh, a teenager when he graduated from Yale, but he did his, and he did his master's dissertation completely in Latin, both verbally and in writing. He had to defend his thesis in Latin <laughs> and he knew Hebrew and Greek fluently. And so he, he felt very free to re uh, translate different passages in the Bible. And several of them are the ones that appear in the Book of Mormon, his retranslations. Or he, he would, we would consider it misquoting the Bible because it's not exactly King James, but the, the Book of Mormon quotes Edward's version of it. It's amazing. And I, I gave a few examples in there. Well, you know, I have the table of like, like 1400 examples and I have more than that. Those are just the ones I put in the book. But so when you have, um, a phrase like weeping, wailing, and gnashing of teeth. That's a non-biblical phrase, but it's an Edwards phrase. And there's, um, I mean, dozens of examples of it. And, and what, that, what that gets back to is this idea of how, how we use language ourselves, because all of us are using the same words, otherwise we couldn't communicate. All we can do is re, reorganize words in our mind to create new thoughts or to express our thoughts in a different way. And so none of us speak a unique language. And, and one of the, the terms that linguists use is this idea of chunks, word chunks. And that children learn language in chunks. They don't learn individual words. They, they learn goodbye, not good and bye, for example, or you know, different phrases. Like very often we hear people say, to make a long story short, that's several words, but it's really one chunk, right? And so we all use these chunks of language. And that's what I was looking for in the Book of Mormon, these, these discrete chunks of language that are not from the Bible, wherever they have come from. And, and they're all, almost all of them are from Jonathan Edwards and or um, James Dean is, is another one. I identified a handful of people, but all from sources that were easily and readily available to Joseph Smith in Palmyra or Vermont or that visited Massachusetts. So when you find these little chunks of language that from the Bible, that's all understandable, but the non-biblical ones are the ones that are more fascinating. And I, I have a list, I, I think I've used several examples in there of the, the um, they're technically not biblical because they're not direct quotations, but they're similar. And those are found in Jonathan Edwards' work. So that's the ones you're, you're talking about, yeah. I think. Yeah, and the, uh, yeah, exactly. And then, and. You know, Colby Townsend's doing a work on the, the King James uh, influence on the Book of Mormon, and he does right. talk about how there's large portions that are, you know, word for word, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what was in the King James Version. But you're more interested in the outliers. I think I just want to emphasize that to the audience, that there are outliers. And you you found the source of that, which was, of course, Jonathan Edwards, which makes it so interesting. And, you, you know, well, and, and, let me just on that point. I know there's there's a couple of people working on the King James quotation, not just Royal Skousen, but they all just assume it's from the Bible. They don't realize that it's just as likely from these uh, Christian authors, in fact, more likely. And it, it's just, that's an example of when we started this conversation talking about the scholars and their assumptions. Mm -hmm. Why assume this from the Bible? It could have been from, if not Jonathan Edwards, it could have been from, um, I don't know, there, there's, Cotton Mather, Increase Mather, these other Christian authors who were widely known and published and easily available. 
So why assume it was directly from the Bible? That, it, it just doesn't make sense. Yes, you're being naughty, Jonathan. You're just thinking way too outside of the box here, man. <laughs> well, it's, to me, it's obvious. I, you know, if I, if I was looking at this as a case and I, some, my opponent in a trial said, well, everything had to come from the Bible, I could destroy that argument in five seconds. You know? Oh, good. Interesting. You know, so, uh, things that also terms that Jonathan Edwards used were actually terms like restoration, mm -hmm. latter days. Yeah. Talk maybe a little bit about that, too. Yeah, well, that that was a real eye opener to me. And I, I looked at it as, as I tried to explain in the book, I tried to read Jonathan Edwards to the minds of a young Joseph Smith. How would Joseph Smith have understood this? Not how did the Calvinists interpret it? Or how did John Wesley interpret it or any of these other theologians? How would Joseph Smith reading Jonathan Edwards understand it? And it gets back to this, I have to do one quick preliminary point on this is, was Joseph Smith just a blank slate, an ignorant farm boy who had no background, or did the Lord prepare him to be a prophet? And it's, it's amazing to me how many people have bought this idea that he was just an innocent, ignorant farm boy, when all the other prophets were carefully prepared. I mean, if you think about it, even Christ was prepared. He was when he was young, he studied in the temple. He learned the Torah. He learned all that. He had to learn that because his mind had been, um, his memory had been erased too. He had to learn all these things. And then as he grew into it, obviously he learned who he was and so on. But as a young boy, he had to be trained too, just like we all do. And to, the idea that Joseph Smith was, not, the Lord didn't prepare him at all and then sprung this angel on him and the restoration it is it's not only counterintuitive, it's non-scriptural. And so I think it's so important for us to recognize how the Lord prepared Joseph Smith to, to do the restoration. And one of the ways to do it was for him to read Jonathan Edwards, how Jonathan Edwards talked about the, the restoration, the, the glories of the church in the latter days, how the the gospel of Christ would be taken to the entire world and be more powerful than ever before and all these other ideas. And, and particularly the idea that it would all come from America is pretty interesting, you know? And so I can, I, I just envisioned Joseph Smith as a young boy reading this and even having a desire to see it fulfilled. And he kind of alludes to that in his, in his 1832 history that he wrote by hand, much of it. Not all of it, but much of it he wrote by hand. And he says he was concerned with these issues. He was convicted of his sins, which is a very Edwardsian you know, term, term, which all the ministers used at the time, but it was still his concern for his soul. Why would he be so concerned for his soul just by reading the Bible? The Bible doesn't really make you that concerned for your soul in that sense of being convicted of your sins. That's not even a biblical term. It comes from the ministers who were encouraging people to read the Bible and to come unto Christ, but the ministers were the ones that were convicting people of their sins, not the Bible itself. And that's the language that Joseph used in his um, 1832 history. Hmm. Interesting. So, you know, I think one of the things that, you know, what's one of the, we talked about this in our previous interview, was how um, one of the most famous verses that's quoted often in general conference um, and in, in your mind without the proper context is a natural man is an enemy to God. Right. And that's yeah. very, that's John Edwards. That's, that's, that's one of his yeah. phrases. I want you to talk a little bit about it taken out of context, but then I also think what you, you propose 
that the Book of Mormon, King Jim, Benjamin in particular, actually, uh, there's an engagement with the text in a way that you have right. this concept of the natural man as an enemy to God, but King Benjamin kind of gives us the solution or finishes the conversation for us. Maybe just talk a little bit about that. Right, yeah, okay. Well, let me, the, the, the way to explain this in an elevator speech is the Book of Mormon is kind of a shorthand reference or is full of shorthand references to Jonathan Edwards. And it's, it's analogous to the, um, the Law of Moses. As the Book of Mormon talks about the Law of Moses, but it never explains what the Law of Moses is. So let's say you're, you live in China, someone gives you a Book of Mormon and you read it and it talks about the law of Moses, you've never heard of this before. You have no idea what it is. Is this a traffic law? Is it a, a law about physics? What is the law of Moses? You have to have the Bible to understand the law of Moses, right? Otherwise it doesn't make any sense. And when I see things like the natural man is an enemy to God, if you just read those words on their own, natural man is in the Bible, enemy, enemy to God is not in the Bible, enemy of God is, but you, you can see those two verses, they don't really interact very well, and so they're not, they're not really blended, the way Skousen would say, they're not blended here. Instead, it's a reference to something entirely non-biblical, and that's why when I looked it up in Jonathan Edwards, I saw he had written this sermon called Natural Men Are an Enemy to God, and it was a whole long sermon. I mean, his sermons had to be you know, pretty long compared to what we're used to today, but he, he would go on and on for hours. But he goes through there and identifies the different ways in which a natural man is an enemy to God. And it's fascinating. It's really interesting and profound thinking. But he doesn't really tell how to overcome it other than just say, you know, rely on Christ or have faith in Christ. But King Benjamin tells you specifically how to overcome that. So it's like you need, if, if you only read King Benjamin, you can speculate about what's a natural man and what's an enemy to God. And that's what LDS authors have been doing all along. They've speculated about different interpretations that they have of it. None of them look to the original source. It'd be like if they were speculating about what the law of Moses was without looking at the Bible. And so if you, if you talk about natural man as an enemy to God without looking at Jonathan Edwards, you're just flying off the seat of your pants. But if you combine Jonathan Edwards and his detailed explanation, doctrinal explanation using the Bible to explain how the natural man is an enemy to God, he doesn't really resolve it. You need the Book of Mormon to complete the thought and to complete the, the um, way you overcome that problem of the natural man. And then, of course, right after that, in King Benjamin's sermon, they have the, the born-again experience and they're all you know, saved and, and so forth. So I see it as you need Jonathan Edwards as the, the background. You need King Benjamin's address about natural man as an enemy to God as kind of a, a brief reference or an allusion to Jonathan Edwards. And then he takes the next step, how to resolve it and have a born again experience out of that. So you really need both of them together, just like you need the Bible and the Book of Mormon together. <laughs> That's only one of several examples, but yeah, I mean, and and I, I just I find that so fascinating because yeah, you you cite other examples as well where Jonathan Edwards and the Book of Mormon are almost having a conversation with each other. Yeah, yeah, and in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah, that's you know, right. My, my favorite example there is where the Lord says, I think it's in section eighteen. It says, "Remember the worth of souls is great." What's he remembering? He's remembering what he had read in Jonathan Edwards and James Hervey and these other authors who specifically said the worth of souls is great. So 
you can't just tell someone to remember something that they've never heard before, right? <laughs> Which is what the, the blank slate theory of Joseph Smith would be. Instead, it's a conversation with Joseph based on what he already had read and knew about. And the Lord was reminding him, remember, the worth of souls is, is great. He could have gone on and said, you read that right in James Hervey, you know, page, whatever. <laughs> and that that's, that's how I see these scriptures working. And what I love about this is that's how the Lord works with us. You know, the scriptures tell us the Holy Ghost will bring all things to our remembrance, right? And so it has, you can't bring things to your remembrance if you haven't read or studied it before. That's why it's so critical for everybody to study the scriptures. You got to read the Bible. You got to read the Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and so on, so that the Spirit can bring those teachings to your recollection and your memory when you need them, right? And that section 18, when the Lord told Joseph, remember the worth of souls is great, that's exactly what was happening. He was reminding him of something he had read before. So, Fascinating. I just think yeah, the way you are, awesome. the, th the things that you've uncovered, because you chose to not put on uh, blinders, but to right. really uh, engage, just go in there and engage Jonathan Edwards and some of the other contemporaries. Um, you talk about how, like Joseph talked about how he, a lot of people thought, well, this is a Methodist minister that Joseph Smith was engaging, and that yeah. was the extent of it. But you talk about how, right. no, Joseph was doing a lot more than that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah he was... It and, and, you know, it's, it's funny, too, because I, I was thinking early on in this process, I would, one, one of the, the challenges I had was accessing Jonathan Edwards' works, because Yale University has a Jonathan Edwards Center, and it's phenomenal, but their database has gaps in it. And so, and I've talked to them about it, and they've told me they're revising their database and fixing these problems, but you can search for, for non-biblical words in the, in the Yale database and they won't show up. And that's because of these gaps. So when I, when I discovered this 1808 edition of, the, of Jonathan Edwards works, it was on sale in Palmyra. I went on um, eBay and actually bought an 1808 set. Because I, I know from past experience that digitalization often has errors in it, right? Not only gaps, but sometimes the words are digitized incorrectly and so on. So I bought the actual one so I could see it for myself. And then I found a version on Kindle of the 1808 one. And so when I would do a search for a, a non-biblical phrase in the Book of Mormon, I would search in the, the Yale collection. And then I would search in the Kindle edition. And if I found something that was close, but it looked like it might be wrong, I'd read the original in, in my actual physical 200 year old books. And that's how I, I ended up discovering all the stuff that otherwise you could not find. And so I, the, the other challenge I had was sometimes I would come across something that was non-biblical language from the Book of Mormon in Jonathan Edwards, but was not in the 1808 set. And I thought, well, that, that ex, uh, contradicts my theory, because theoretically, it would have to be accessible to Joseph Smith. But I was visiting the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., and they had an exhibit there on Jonathan Edwards. And one of the things they showed was a sample of this little pamphlet of Jonathan Edwards' sermon. That was just a, a pamphlet. It wasn't in this collected version of 1808 uh, eight volumes. And they people would distribute these and, and send them around. And so even Jonathan Edwards' works that were not in the 1808 edition were accessible to Joseph Smith. 
the other thing I found was I, I have a collection of old uh, books, of, of old Christian books. And one of them was a missionary magazine from New York that was published in, I think it was 1800, might've been 1810, something like that. And it was just a, a compilation of their monthly magazine in, in a bound volume. And one of them had a sermon by Jonathan Edwards that was not in the 1808 edition. So it was circulating widely available to people. So I ended up concluding that pretty much anything, well, everything Jonathan Edwards had written or spoken was finished by the 18, 18, uh, 1760, because he died in 1758, I think it was. So it was all available. A lot of it was his private notes that had never been published or his um, excerpts from his, what they call the miscellanies, which were his notes that he took on the Bible and his thoughts and so on. Those weren't always as widely published until 1830. And I don't know if you were gonna to get to this in the questions, but there's a few uh, developments of, of LDS thought, Mormon thought that postdated the Book of Mormon, such as polygamy, right? Or um, I can't remember the other example off the top of my head, but those were brought up in this 1830 edition of Edwards. And I thought, okay, so after Joseph finished the Book of Mormon, that wasn't the end of his looking at Jonathan Edwards and the other theologians. And you can tell from his sermons that he was very familiar with the teachings of, of other Christians. And so I, I have a little section in there on polygamy as a hypothesis that I found fascinating. And I, I started to wonder, I wonder if he might have adjusted the translation of the Book of Mormon if he had run across that Edwards passage before he translated it. And uh, you want me to get into that a little bit? Well, you kind of, it's kind of like uh, Edwards contrasts the many wives of Solomon with the, 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 the church, basically, in that context. Yeah. Yeah. He compares it. He says that Solomon was a type for the church in the latter days because Solomon had wives from all the different nations, bringing them under the, his kingdom, let's say. And in the latter days, Christ would bring people from all around the world into his kingdom. And so he said Solomon's plural wives, he didn't say plural wives, I think he called it, uh, you know, concubines or whatever. But the idea of him having many wives was a type of Christ in the last days, bringing people from all around the world into the kingdom. And it's a beautiful metaphor. I mean, people get offended by polygamy, but as a metaphor, it makes perfect sense. And so I can see that as the genesis for Joseph's thinking and later inspiration and revelation about polygamy. By the way, that brings up a, an interesting point too about types and shadows because types is not a biblical word, right? There's a couple of references to shadows as a, um, what, what do they call that? Like, a, well, I always think types of shadows, but a fore, uh, forecasting or mm -hmm. anticipation of, so Edwards spent a lot of time, there's a whole section of his uh, work called typology, where he was looking in the Old Testament for types and shadows of Christ. And he used the phrase types and shadows very often, just as the Book of Mormon does. But it's, that's non-biblical. That didn't come from the Bible. It had to come from outside the Bible. And it fits so perfectly with Jonathan Edwards, because they used the, some of the same types and shadows in the Book of Mormon that Jonathan Edwards did. So, you know, it's awesome. Yeah. Not to mention that we talked a lot about Hebrew parallelism, which is a whole nother topic I didn't even hardly get into in the book because I had to shorten it. 
but if you get into Edwards' work, he even used principles of Hebrew parallelism in his own sermons. And of course, we all know about chiasmus and other Hebrew parallelism. That's Jonathan Edwards. And I'm not saying that Jonathan Edwards taught Joseph Smith how to do it, but he did demonstrate how to do it. <laughs> That's all you can say, really. And he talked about it, you know. You know, um, I, I want us to talk a little bit about how you view Jonathan Edwards now that you engaged him through your book. And this is what I find so fascinating is that, you know, in one sense, you feel that Jonathan Edwards essentially anticipated the role that America would play in the bringing forth of the gospel, that it would take, that it would start in New England, um, mm -hmm. that there would be um, so many things that he was anticipating that was forthcoming. Yeah. And you actually uh, talk about at the end of the, in one of the appendices how you, I believe it is, um, believe that he's, I was thinking more like you thinking him as being like a type of a John the Baptist too, mm -hmm. Joseph, but you actually compare him to another character. Please maybe elaborate on that. Yeah, the Elias character. And that, you know, I, I'll tell you a little bit about that, how that came about. I had this idea of the John the Baptist kind of analogy. And I, you know, I send this out for peer review early on, even though my critics think I don't get stuff peer reviewed. And so I, I, one of the peer reviewers wrote back and said, you know, this sounds to me like an Elias scenario more than a John the Baptist scenario. And I, by then I had already indexed the whole book and everything. So I didn't have a lot of room to expand it. So I had a blank page. I had fortuitously left a blank page on the back of the conclusion. And so I filled it with the Elias concept. Because when I started comparing what Joseph Smith and Jonathan Edwards both said about Elias, it was completely congruent. They said basically the same thing about what the role of an Elias was. And I see Jonathan Edwards is definitely in that role as, as laying the groundwork. And, and here's the thing, and, and this is something that I, I wasn't sure how to approach with Christians and in general, maybe you can help me with this because you know, the, the, the traditional uh, Matthew kind of an approach was to tell the Jews that they should have been anticipating Christ because of what the Old Testament said, right? That the Old Testament prophesied of Christ, here's all this, the, the indicia of it, and you Jews should recognize Christ and accept him as the Messiah, right? And I see Jonathan Edwards is doing the same kind of a function for Christians in general, by talking about America as, as the, the land where the gospel would come forth, that um, the first shall be last and last shall be first, those kind of things, as well as this idea of the glory of the church in the latter days and how it would be, it would far exceed anything that had happened before that. And it would bring all people together and in the kingdom of Christ and so on. Those are all, when, when I read those now, I can say, well, Jonathan Edwards was trying to prepare Christians for the restoration, and but the Christians didn't recognize it, right? And I think one of the reasons that the Christians didn't recognize it is that Joseph Smith didn't expressly make the link himself either. It was kind of implicit in the Book of Mormon and in his sermons and in the Doctrine and Covenants, but he never went around and said, Jonathan Edwards told you guys that I was gonna be coming along, right? And, you know, Christ never really did that either with the Jews. It was left up to Matthew and, and the other uh, gospel authors to make that connection. Now, he did announce that he was the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Christ did do that. 
but that was in one synagogue on one occasion. You know, I wasn't, he didn't emphasize that over and over and over. And, and when, as I read, of course, we don't have very much of what Joseph Smith taught. He taught 200 sermons that nobody even wrote records of. And most of what we have was what he wrote in the Nauvoo period when he was off on other topics. But when it comes to the, the pure restoration, to me, it seems obvious that, of course, a little bias confirmation here, right? Because I'm a believer, a believing LDS. But it seems obvious to me that Jonathan Edwards really was trying to prepare Christians for this amazing restoration that would come to pass someday in the future that he was trying to do with, with his uh, great awakening. But it was beyond the, the great awakening. There was going to be even more to it. And that's, you know, I, I have the quote in here by Elder Hall in the General Conference from General Jonathan Edwards, how he said that Edwards was writing about how God would communicate with us. And that's what made Christianity different than other religions that didn't believe that God communicated directly with man. And that is, in my mind, the way Elder Holland presented it is, is sort of like Jonathan Edwards was trying to tell all of Christianity that God will still communicate with us, which is exciting for me, you know. And, and I, I feel like I'm not expecting Christians to just adopt this premise and say, oh, okay, well, then Jonathan Edwards said it, then the restoration is true, right? Because <laughs> there's a lot of other issues involved. But I do see it as a way to move towards a, a convergence or a more a united effort to bring people to Christ. It's, it's sort of like this multiple working hypothesis you talked about earlier. I, I can see, and, and, and you've brought up before how I, you know, I, I, I quoted Ella Christopherson who, taught, who said the Book of Mormon is a gift for the whole world. You don't have to be a member of the LDS church or another restoration church to appreciate the Book of Mormon and to have that bring you to Christ. And so you can be an evangelical or Baptist, Catholic, whatever, and you can embrace the Book of Mormon as helping to bring people, including ourselves, to Christ. And we don't, we can disagree about aspects of the, <laughs> the restoration or a particular theology, but let's see the Book of Mormon as a gift for everybody. And we can all, even if we have different ideas, even within the LDS church, there's different people have different ideas. And that doesn't prevent us from being united and bringing people to Christ and trying to live a more Christ-like life. And that's why I embrace the evangelicals, the Baptists, Methodists, everybody. We should all be finding ways to come together on this. That's, well, that's what I hope well, this book does. Well, I just want to show you my favorite Book of Mormon, and this is okay. the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh -huh. um, some call it the Bickerton organization, but they just prefer to be called the Church of Jesus Christ. And one of my favorite things about their Book of Mormon is that it's a red letter edition. So, oh yeah. So here's Third Nephi. It's all red, and yeah. uh, I really like that of what they did mm -hmm. because it talks about how Christ-centered the Book of Mormon is. So this is the other thing, folks: is the Book of Mormon doesn't just belong to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Right. Right. There are many, many other branches within the Restoration that you probably never even heard of. Uh, mm -hmm. But they also use the Book of Mormon. At, it functions as scripture to them. And right. they are also feel the same call to spread the gospel of Christ via the Book of Mormon. And so when Jonathan, when you so I remember, I think I read a blogger saying how, oh, you know, he was criticizing you for making that point. I wonder yeah. if that, that person even knows that these churches exist. Probably not. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have to say I love the critics because <laughs> it, 
part of it is I, I don't even respond to most of them because I assume people can think for themselves and realize that most of what they criticize are things I haven't ever said. It's, it's, it's they're revealing their own biases by not engaging with what I'm trying to say and what I've actually said. But in that case is a, is a perfect example. They're just speaking out of ignorance. So what can you do? I mean, you can't educate people that don't want to be educated. And so I, I, feel, I feel like um, the, the LDS apologists have really blinded themselves to so much possibility out there because of their narrow-mindedness and their refusal to consider multiple working hypotheses. And I, I love what you're doing because you are, you're highlighting ways in which people who otherwise would never encounter one another can not only get to know each other, but find mutual uh, interests, mutual objectives and goals, and even work together on projects. It's awesome. Yeah. So it needs to be done, you know? Well, I just, I believe very firmly where, um, where there's zero unity, that's where the spirit is. Yeah, it operates for sure. in unity, and I think that that's what we all should be striving for. Not some. Yes. Fake... Let me just as you said that I thought Christ said where two or three more are gathered. You know, they don't. He didn't say they have to all agree. They're just gathered, with a united purpose. But they could have completely different ideas. It could be you, me, and a, you know a Confucian or something or a Hindu. But we're gathered together with united purpose, and the spirit is there in those situations. Interesting. So anyway, go ahead. Oh, that's that's a very interesting insight there. I like that. You you just have such a, a active mind. This book is really interesting, Jonathan. And I just want to ask, what do you think are the implications? Now, part of me looks reads this book, and thinks, okay, us evangelicals, we come up with Bible commentaries all the time, which right. uh, kind of gives you the context of you know the scriptures and gives you the background mm -hmm. and stuff like that. I don't know if it's going to be you or somebody who uh, understands the significance of this book, but to be able to know the background and the influences on the translator, mm -hmm. and then to be able to, if somebody, man, I'll tell you, maybe it's you or we can inspire somebody to do it, but to actually come up with a Book of Mormon commentary that actually talks about all the influences it has. And then, then we can talk about how the conversation between Jonathan Edwards and King Benjamin and how significant of a find that was and how that would actually... Uh, enlighten the Book of Mormon to the audience in a way that they, they would have never even thought. Well, let me tell you a little, because when I, when I did this book, this is a, a real abridged version of all my research. <laughs> and it, you know, my publisher said, you can't have a book that's more than 300 pages. And I said, well, what did it end up at? Three, 320 or something. Mm -hmm. And just and so, so you know, folks, it's like 200 pages of the book and then another hundred of appendixes with all the right. references and you could have yeah. probably i have thousands of pages of notes and so one of the things that i did early on in this was i started picking random chapters of the book of mormon and annotating them and i, I have one example in here i think of, of that but i i took joseph smith's 1832 history and annotated it i took um you know king benjamin's address and annotated it i i did first nephi I did lots of different chapters in the Book of Mormon, and I've annotated them showing, okay, all the biblical passages we already have footnotes for, but what about all the non-biblical? And that's what I've really developed. And it, it is just mind-blowing how it expands the book. It's, and I, I pointed, I think I pointed out in the introduction or the preface where I said, if you, if you look at the very first verse in the Book of Mormon, it has these footnotes, 
And if you pursue the footnotes, you find out there's all kinds of allusions to, to biblical passages, right? And when you read those, when it talks about, uh, you know, a king or something, you have to read the footnotes to know who that king was. And I find the same thing throughout the Book of Mormon, the entire Book of Mormon. And, and natural man is an enemy of God is one example, but there's many other examples. And I, I don't know how that could be done in a book because it's so voluminous, but I, I can envision kind of an online linking mechanism where you read a, a verse in the Book of Mormon and there's links all through it to the Jonathan Edwards references or whoever it is. And then you can see, oh, okay, that phrase is a shorthand reference to this concept. And I see how it fits in here. That's how it is for me. When I, <laughs> just so you know, the last couple of years, I've been working on this off and on for like three years. It started when I was in Mauritius and I had a lot of free time on my hand. And I, at first I started going through the Palmyra newspapers to look for non-biblical language. And then I've expanded and ended up with Jonathan Edwards. So when I was in China, I was working on this and it's always been kind of a back burner project. And, and for probably at least two years now, I've had people bugging me. I mean, you've been bugging me for a while about it, but I've had other people bugging me for a couple of years. When are you gonna finish the Edwards book? Because I would share some of my discoveries and they would be so amazed and excited and interested in it. And I said, eventually the right time will come, you know, and I, I, I don't have time to get into the details why it was finally the right time, but this spring, there was a few events that occurred that were like the final epiphany, however you want to call it, that said, okay, now this is the right time. And it was really an amazing experience to me because I had all this tons of material and I had to condense it down. So I would absolutely love to have some kind of a reference or commentary or something on the Book of Mormon that goes through all the non-biblical language. And I, I should bring up another point here because I'm sure people will, will think of this. There's been, there's been previous studies about the Book of Mormon language, for example, the one on the late war, right? Where these guys did a survey, digitized 800,000 books, and they said, okay, the late war is the most similar to the Book of Mormon. And the apologists, the LDS apologists, like at Fair Mormon at the time, would say, well, there's no evidence Joseph Smith ever read the late war, and these connections are illusory, and they're, there's, and I thought to myself, what the heck? If Joseph didn't read the late war, he would have been the only kid in his age group who didn't. And it was a, a book about the War of 1812 that was like his 9-11 for his day. It'd be like a kid born, you know, 9-11 was uh, 20, 20 years, years ago, ago now or something. <laughs> It'd be like a kid who's uh, now, say, 20, 25 or so, who never heard of 9-11 or wasn't interested in it when it was part of his formative years having this incredible attack. That's how Joseph Smith was when he was in that age of five to seven to eight years old. The War of 1812 was the war. He, his brother was buried in a cemetery named after a, a hero from the War of 1812. The people in Palmyra had, were veterans of that war. The British had attacked Pulteneyville, which is just barely north of, of Palmyra, and had bombarded it, invaded the land, you know, caused damage and so on. So, I mean, this was the idea that Joseph didn't know about the War of 1812 or wasn't interested in enough to read the book about it, to me, is preposterous. So, but what does it mean? 
It means that the language in the late war, just like in the other books Joseph read, became part of his lexicon, part of his uh, mental language bank. So naturally, when he translated, he would draw on that lexicon. So when I, when I see that evidence about the late war, to me, that's evidence that Joseph Smith translated the book. One, one of the concepts I use is evidence of composition is also evidence of translation, right? And, and I, one of my favorite authors is um, the Russian writer. Tolstoy? I love Tolstoy, but I've only read it in translation because I don't read Russian. I've learned a little Russian, but not enough to read Tolstoy. And so, and there's different translations. But if I just went to the shelf and picked off a book, The Res Resurrection is one of my favorites of his. If I put that Resurrection book in English, the only way I know if it's an original book written in English or a translation is if the person who created it tells me it was a translation. Because it's in English, right? Someone could have written that book in English just the way it is. And so it's the same any, with any translation. The only way you know it's a translation is if the, the creator tells you it, they translated it. And that's what Joseph Smith did. He said, I translated this book. I didn't write it. I translated it. And so once you take that as an understanding and you read through it, you would expect it to be in the language of the translator. It's the only way it can possibly happen. And so I love the, the late war um, material because that's evidence to me that Joseph translated the book. Then you have on the other side, you have the Royal Skousen theory of early modern English. I don't know if, if you want to get into that, I'll just mention it briefly because I think I mentioned it in the book. I, I had, hate to say it's laughable, but it is sort of because it's, it's like this uh, assumption that the biblical language has to only come from the King James Bible instead of from all the ministers that Joseph was familiar with. The idea of early modern English is that there's, there's uh, indicia or artifacts of early modern English in the Book of Mormon that are not in Joseph Smith's 1832 handwritten uh, manuscript. And the first point is that speaking and writing are two different skills. The second point is by 1832, he'd been educated by Frederick G. Williams, Oliver Cowdery, and so on. So he learned better grammar. In fact, he was changing the language in the Doctrine and Covenants accordingly. The early language in the Doctrine and Covenants is much more like the, the Bible with some of the early modern English in it. Later, that all disappears. But the biggest issue is the only verbatim transcript we have of Joseph Smith speaking is the text of the Book of Mormon. That's the only evidence we have of how he actually spoke. And these guys say that's evidence of how he didn't speak. <laughs> it just, it makes no sense. It's, it's the exact inverse of, of reality. And so I understand where they're going with it because I think early on they were trying to distance Joseph Smith from the translation to defeat the arguments of, from the late war and these other influences to try to say Joseph wasn't copying anything. It wasn't Solomon uh, Spaulding, it wasn't the late war. It was the stone in the hat and it, it was a miracle and Joseph couldn't have done it and so on. But to me, that's a, a very um, attenuated explanation. I think a much more practical explanation is that the Lord helped Joseph Smith translate it, definitely inspired him, but it's his language and his, he drew on his lexicon to translate it the way he did. So, and, and there's lots more we can get into on that, but it, it's, it's just, 
so much more congruent with our everyday experience. I mean, the Bible itself was written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although some people think they didn't write it right. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't written by someone reading a stone on a hat. You know, it, it was humans kind of expressing the divine, their experience with the divine, right? And that's what the Book of Mormon is. He had actual plates with engravings with characters on them that he had to translate. It was up to him to translate it. And there's, there's, you know, my latest thing I've been talking about, Skousen's interpretation of the witnesses. We don't need to digress into that, but that would be an interesting podcast someday too, because that's a whole new thing that in the LDS community, everybody's rejecting Joseph Smith as a translator, and they're saying he just read words off the stone. And to me, that's I, I, it's not even supportable by the historical evidence, let alone basic logic, you know. So I'm digressing, I guess. No, that's fine. You can digress all you want on my show, Jonathan. I just okay. think, I right. think you're just a wonderful guest. And, you know, this is the thing, you know, um, we've, we've become friends through this process as well. You know, yeah. we, we text yeah, each sure. other. And I remember you, yeah. every once in a while, you'll text me a painting that you're working on. And I just want the right. audience to point out that behind you are all these paintings. Oh, yeah. Well, this one up here is Winslow Homer. He's my, my hero, really. I love his stuff. But the rest of them, yeah. So I'm still working on it. And this is what I found so interesting about Jonathan is, you know, so often, especially when we're um, combating each other, if you will, uh, we look at mm -hmm. other people as being one or two dimensional type, type of people. Yeah. And I think it's really important for my audience to know that Jonathan is a world traveler. He's been to every continent, including Antarctica. Um, he's a very intellectually curious person. Um, he's an artist. I, when I first started engaging, I said, Jonathan, you're a Renaissance man. Well, not quite, because I, I know those Renaissance guys were a lot more proficient than I am. But I, you know, I do my part. Yeah, and I just think. <laughs> I, well, I've always I, I've I love the idea that we we gather truth from wherever it is, right? And I also love the idea that we're not, we don't have a catechism that we have to adopt, and embrace. The Articles of Faith, but they're pretty loose, you know, really when it gets down to it. So. I, I think that it's important for people to be interested in a variety of topics. I mean, one of my favorite topics is physics. I took a class on relativity, so I could kind of understand that a little bit, you know, and I, I, I just think that the more fields that you're exposed to and have experience in, the more you can draw from them to, to make, find threads and, and interconnections that you wouldn't see if you're just an expert in one field. Yeah, and I think that's important for people to kind of get the understanding of the way you think. You know, one of the things about me is when somebody would go to me and say, don't go there, guess what? That's where mm -hmm. I go. Yeah, me too. Me too. Same way. <laughs> and I think that's why you and I connected early on because I, I, I am yeah. very simpatico. You know, just I feel like uh, we, we, we have some very similar, uh, we think similarly in some ways. Yeah. And I just want my audience to recognize that, you know, there have been people who've told me um, their minds were changed about you and even how they perceived the heartland model based on the interviews that I had with you. People that would not normally give you the time of day are actually listening to you a little bit more now and taking you a little bit more seriously because I'm an outsider. I don't have a dog mm -hmm. in this fight. And I just step in and think, this is an interesting man. He's an original thinker. And you're not afraid to embrace the scholarship, acknowledge it. You're not trying to um, throw anything under the rug. 
you're, you're willing to engage all that is out there, but also be mm -hmm. faithful and orthodox in the way you do it, but also do it in a very heterodox way, if you will. <laughs> well, and, and like I said earlier, I, I love the research that the scholars do when it comes to the facts. And, and I love when they, when they dig up a, you know, an entry in a journal from somewhere or they find a newspaper account that we didn't know about before. I love all that stuff. I love all the stuff that Royal Skousen did on the original manuscript of the Book of Mormon. A lot of that is in my book about a man that can translate. Where I, what I don't like is when they adopt a theory and they try to enforce their theories. Because I think that the only thing a legitimate scholar can do is, here's my interpretation of the facts. And I, I encourage people to dissect it and analyze it and propose alternatives. You know, in, in, in the world of physics, in the hard sciences and chemistry and, and so on, people are constantly looking for facts and then they look for theories to explain those facts, right? And no one is wedded to their theories. Well, there's probably some, but a, a legitimate scientist is not wedded to a particular theory. They are searching constantly for the best theory that explains the facts. And unfortunately, what I see happening in historical circles as well as in apologetic circles is they don't take that approach. They develop the theory and they keep trying to reinforce their theory instead of considering alternative theories that maybe are better explanations. And, and it becomes an orthodoxy for them. And because of their positions of influence and, and even power at BYU in particular, and in the church educational system, they enforce their theories and impose them on their students and then it perpetuates itself. And, and it gets to the point, one of the Mesoamerican scholars uh, said that he can't unsee Mesoamerica when he reads the Book of Mormon. And that's where a lot of these scholars, academics and apologists are, they can't unsee their theories. And I, I empathize with that because you know, I went to BYU and I studied with John Sorensen and I used to know all that Mesoamerican stuff. I traveled to Central America. And when I would, would visit some of the sites down there, I see little incongruities like, well, this is what I expected and this is what I'm seeing. And it's not the same, you know. And it wasn't until, I, I, I don't want to get back into the geography, but it, it's an example of how when you start questioning their assumptions, you can embrace all the facts. But when you question the assumptions, you start seeing different interpretations of those facts. And for me, it always comes back to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery were, were straightforward, forthright, honest, and explicit about their experiences. And you, our, our modern scholars, even in the LDS community, are trying to diminish them as, as um, credible. You know, recently, Royal Skousen said they deliberately misled people and so on. And that's where you go if you're wedded to your theories instead of trying to explain the facts. And, you know, I, I, I have to say I love the evangelical uh, responses to Mormonism as well, because I, I understand kind of where they're coming from in many cases. And I think the CES letter makes some really good points about what the, the apologists have been saying. And that's why I think the apologists are losing those arguments because it's, it's just, um, they're, they're just not credible and when you follow, and they're not even rational in many cases. So when you have factual and logical fallacies as part of your argument, then your argument doesn't hold up to people who are unbiased. 
or objective. So I, I, this all gets back to this idea of multiple working hypotheses. And I, I, that's why I love what you're doing. I'm hoping that LDS people will start to look at facts as opposed to um, hypotheses and theories and recognize there's multiple ways of interpreting facts. And I hope the evangelicals do the same thing. I hope, I hope that this book, this infinite goodness book, can kind of break a log jam a little bit for the Christian community as well as the LDS community. And we, we can see coming together a lot more, I guess, easier and clearer by recognizing that Jonathan Edwards had such a big influence on the Book of Mormon. And then one of the, re you reference a term you use as shaking hands. Yeah, really. Um, I love and, that. Yeah, I like that, the, the idea of these things coming together and shaking hands with each other. Yeah. And uh, yeah. I just want to say that that's what I want to do is when I hopefully get out to Utah soon to be able to shake your hands or at least give you a fist pump, whatever it is. Um, there you go. Here we go. Even better, come to Oregon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you never know. <laughs> I don't get to Utah very often, so... <laughs> Well, uh, you know, if I get out there later this month, perhaps I'll see it. But I think it's just yeah. important that we have these conversations where we have the yeah. commonalities. And I just appreciate the work that you're doing, Jonathan, because, you know, this book, I think, will have implications. I don't think people really maybe don't totally understand until they actually read the book and what might happen, future developments regarding this book might happen. Um, I think it's going to be a potential watershed movement, a moment. Uh, and I'm very excited. Let me ask you real quick. Yeah. When you were reading Jonathan Edwards talking about the restoration of the latter days and all that, had, were you familiar with what he was teaching about all that? I've, I've never heard these terms before, you know, not in that. Yeah. Con yeah. So it, it is very interesting. Now, um, if somebody were to, I mean, those would be words that would Christians would have used, of course, in some context. But we would certainly wouldn't think of it in the context of how you would. Right. So we would right. restoration, latter days, that's fine. So and I'm in the charismatic movement and many refer to yeah. us as a restorationist movement. Right. Because right. we're trying to restore back to the first century church. Right. Uh -huh. So it can be interpreted, well, multiple working hypotheses, right? We can sure. look at it from different right. perspectives. Totally. So, so I would look at it as a charismatic that Jonathan mm -hmm. Edwards is is um, maybe anticipating the charismatic movement in Azusa okay, Street, perfect. you know, yeah. um, and, 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 and a latter day reign of God, you know, or movement, mm -hmm. you know, so that would be one way of possibly looking at it, how Christians would look at okay. it. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that makes good sense. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. see, we have both kind of have a restorationist mindset. Right, right. And so we could look and, at and it. What, what's amazing to me is how few people know that as, that side of Jonathan Edwards. Because mm -hmm. you're right, they all focus on that sermon which actually he gave early in his career before he wrote most of his material. Yeah. And what did you think about how I mentioned the um, section 122 invoking that sermon about the, the, the jaws of hell gaping open? Oh yeah, the that? jaws of hell, yeah, yeah. Wasn't yeah. that something? Yeah. That was amazing to me too. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 was, that is amazing to see. And then, see, I'm more of a Book of Mormon guy so I, yeah. I, I'm more than a DNC guy, if you will. Right. Yeah, I understand. <laughs> but uh, so I, I, I spend a lot more time focusing on that aspect of it. But I did catch that. And that, that's what this thing about this whole thing, folks, is that it's what Jonathan presents is a pretty airtight case that Jonathan Edwards had a unique influence on the mm -hmm. restoration. He is the, yeah. the evangelical godfather, if you will, of American Protestantism. <laughs> And this man also was deeply influential, more so than anybody possibly could have imagined. 
and because yeah. you're willing to open your eyes and not be constrained uh, and, and just be able to look at all the evidence as it's presented, I think mm -hmm. you make a very compelling case, Jonathan, um, that there's no doubt in my mind after reading this book that Jonathan Edwards had a fundamental role to play in the formation of the early church and in yeah. the composition of the Book of Mormon. Yeah, cool. Well, that's how I feel. And I'm, I'm right now I'm at the stage of trying to decide how to take it further because I have, you know, I, I want to do a Jonathan Edwards reader for LDS people. A lot of people have asked me for that because it's so voluminous and how do you sift through it? I want to do what you were talking about, the intertextuality in more detail. And I, I want to paint paintings. So how do I do it? <laughs> but fortunately, I can't travel now. So that's a big part of my life that's in suspension. So yeah, you're, yeah, still, you're still stateside. Well, um, yeah, that's it's a fascinating. I'm going to be, you're, you have an open invitation to come on my program anytime to talk about okay. any new projects. I really cool. love what you're doing, Jonathan. I think you're just a fabulous uh, interview. I think your ideas are original. Um, they're very coherent. You know, some, let me just put it this way, folks. I talk to people off camera and I talk to some very prestigious people. One, I don't want to give too much away, but let me just put it this way. This person specifically told me off camera, said, Jonathan Neville is a radical thinker in the best sense of the term. And he said, now, I don't agree with everything that he writes, but he said, you know what? He documents everything. He does his research. And I just want, if I, if I told you who told me this, you would be blown out of the water, folks. So I just want you to know that, you know, Jonathan has some people that are highly regarded that also highly regard Jonathan. So Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for coming on to my program. Well, thank you, Stephen. It's always fun talking with you and I look forward to meeting you hopefully in Utah. Hopefully soon, or maybe Oregon or wherever, <laughs> where our paths will eventually cross, I will tell you That's that. That's right. And okay. so I just want to remind my audience to like and subscribe and make sure you hit the notification button to be informed when a new video is released. Um, I want to thank everybody for uh, sitting in through this fabulous interview. Uh, we are going to get through this epidemic. We will get through this together. And I just want to thank Jonathan for taking your time. You're a busy guy. I just want to thank you for blessing me for coming onto this show. Um, thank you again. Always my pleasure. And I just want to wish my audience, have yourself a wonderful day and Godspeed.